Joe and Larry were college roommates. And through those four years, they became best friends. Life and career choices took them different paths, and so they went about 15 years without seeing each other. But they got the good news one day that their two companies that they worked for were going to do a deal together. And we're going to have this big meeting of, of all the people in their corporations or in any kind of leadership role. And they'd been there long enough to kind of earn that spot at this giant hotel and resort area. They could bring their families and it was just going to be this thing. And they, they messaged each other and they said, I can't wait to see you. It's been so long. I just can't wait to get caught up. And so the day finally came and, and they met at this hotel and, and they said, okay, at such and such a time, we're going to meet in the lobby. And that time came and, and, and I mean, they had, their families were all checked in and, and they walked into the lobby and they saw, their, they'd stayed in touch, you know, phone calls and stuff and emails, but not seen each other in the flesh for 15 years. Best buds in college. And it was just this wonderful time of a reunion and they just gave each other a big kind of guy hug, you know, they're pounding on the back and, oh, it's so good to see you, you know, man. And they just sat down and they just started to get caught up and the whole world just faded away. The whole world, just including their families, just disappeared. At 4.30 in the morning, Joe returned to his room after staying up all night with his buddy Larry. When Larry saw him later that day at the, at the meeting, he said, uh, are you in as much trouble as I am? And he said, oh, man, I got back to the room and my wife got historical. He said, don't you mean hysterical? No, historical. She told me everything I ever did wrong. Like, <laughs> you identify with that? You ever been there? Where, where you or someone you know kind of takes advantage of the relationship, kind of steps on someone's goodwill, they abuse your forbearance, they end up hurting you. Maybe you were the one who did that to someone else. I, we probably all experienced the time when someone that we know, someone we're in relationship with, did something to us to hurt us. Um, if that hasn't happened to you yet, you should probably be in the nursery right now. Um, I mean, it, 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 it's kind of universal. And maybe, maybe this is something that, God forbid, is, is a currently ongoing experience for you. Like you're in the middle of it right now. You came in here this morning in the middle of that mess. Someone's taking advantage of their relationship. They're maybe even acting in a way that is totally at odds with the way of Jesus. How do you handle that? How do you deal with that kind of mess? How do you clean it? Up. We're going to talk about that today. So open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You can open up your Bible app to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Thank you so much for being here today. Grateful for you here in the room. Thank you for those of you watching online. Uh, grateful that you logged in this morning. Take a second if you haven't yet. Fill out your connection card. Uh, we've been in a series for the last couple weeks in 1 Corinthians called Messy Church. And we have come to probably, I think, the messiest section in the book. The relationship problems that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6 sound like something ripped from a, a tabloid uh, gossip rag at the checkout counter at the grocery store. This church was a mess, and we're going to wade right into the worst of it in just a minute. So, if you have a kid with you, or you have a kid with you at home uh, who's grade school age, uh, today's message might be a bit too grown up for them, all right? Um, this is a PG-13 sermon, 
We sent out an email. We put it on social media. We tried to let everybody know in advance. And here's why I do these. I only do a few a year, but I preach PG-13 sermons because we live in an R-rated world. Right? And I am of the conviction, and maybe I'm wrong about this. You, you, you can disagree with me, and we can still love and serve Jesus together. But I'm of the conviction that because we didn't do these sermons 50, 60 years ago, that's part of the reason we're in the mess we're in now. Because it was not polite to talk about this stuff then. You didn't talk about that at church. And so people only got the world's perspective and not God's on these issues. And maybe it happened in life groups. Maybe it happened in Sunday school. I don't know. But we, we do PG-13 sermons so we can hear God's perspective on these messy, messy issues. So I'm going to pray in just a second. I'm going to give an announcement. If you've got a young person with you here today and you don't feel like they're mature enough to handle a message about sexual brokenness and lawsuits and immorality that way, you, now would be an appropriate time to take them down the hall to uh, the kids' area. If, if you think they can handle it, that's up to you. That's, that's, as a parent, that's your decision to make. So let's pray. God... Uh, we come to you today uh, grateful for grace. We come to you thankful that you have called us into fellowship with you even in the middle of our mess. I pray, Lord, for wisdom uh, for me as I speak, for soft hearts for the congregation as they listen, and, and ultimately, Jesus, we pray that you would glorify your name through this message. We pray that we would hear not the salacious gossip of the Corinthian church, but the powerful grace of a loving God. We also pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now. Um, we pray for those who are in harm's way there. And we pray for the persecuted church around the world, Jesus. Thank you for their faithfulness and their testimony. Um, we know that one day we will meet them in glory. And uh, I just can't wait to shake their hand and say thank you. Uh, pray, we pray, Lord, that we would use every privilege and freedom we have for the advancement of your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One more thing to let you know about. Uh, so Sunday, September 19th is National Back to Church Sunday. We are uh, excited about this. Uh, we're going to have a blast. We're going to throw a big old party, okay? So we'll have food trucks out in the north parking lot, inflatables for the kids, games. It's going to be awesome. Now, to pull that off, we need some volunteers, okay? So uh, there's a sign-up. Uh, kiosk in the lobby today if you'd like to help with that. We appreciate uh, you, those of you being willing to serve that way. Um, please, if you would, uh, if you're able to do that, take a second and, uh, and help us out, sign up uh, to help out serve that direction. That would be fantastic. Uh, for those of you watching at home, even if you're concerned about being in a building with, with folks, uh, that event is going to be outside. And so we, we would love for you to be here on site with us. If that doesn't work for you, you should still come to that, all right? We're going to be outside, and we're going to be having a blast, and, and we miss you. We, we want you here. So um, like I said, the relationships in this church were a mess. There's a guy sleeping with his stepmother. People are suing each other. People are abusing the grace of God by separating their conduct from their doctrine. This church was a mess. And into the middle of that mess comes the grace of Jesus. The grace of God enters into the mess and it changes it. That's really the major theme of the book of 1 Corinthians. Look back at the opening prayer. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.4 with me. Paul says, I always thank my God for you because of the grace given you 
in Christ Jesus. Remember, we said in a first century letter that opening prayer for them usually is the theme of the letter. And so the whole book of 1 Corinthians is about God's grace expressed to this church. Listen, it's, it's God's grace in these chapters applied to their relationships. And we've all messed up in our relationships with God and with other people. We've abused their goodwill and their forbearance, for, sometimes for our own selfish ends. We've acted in a way that's opposed to the way of Jesus. But here's the good news this morning. Here's the big idea. God's grace can overcome the ways we mess up our relationships with God and each other. It's, it's big enough to clean these relational messes that we get into. Now, in order to clean a mess, you first have to understand it. If you've ever been in a situation where, like, at your house, there's this giant mess, and you're like, I don't even know where to start. And someone comes in and says, pick up those Legos and put them in that container. That's how it happens at my house. Okay, Legos. All right, now put your blanket where it goes. Okay, now put your pillow. And it's just like, thank you, right? Someone's kind of understanding how to, how to put the mess back where it's supposed to be. That is what I want to do today. Okay, first I want to talk about, you know, do a little diagnostic and figure out how we made this mess to begin with. So let's talk about how we mess up our relationships. Now there are a lot of ways to answer that question biblically. I think the way that Paul answers it in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 is about as definitive and categorically true as you can get. In these two chapters, Paul gives us three ways that we make a mess of our relationships. Here's the first one. Number one, we make a mess when we boast about hypocrisy. We make a mess when we boast about hypocrisy. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? And put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, remember he's writing him a letter, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now skip down to verse 9. He said, I wrote to you in my letter, pause, this is 1 Corinthians. What letter? He hasn't yet kind of talked about this yet. Some scholars think that there was another letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church prior to this one that we don't have. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what happened there. Maybe it was just a real quick little note. Maybe it was somehow. So this, this, there's something that happened prior to this because this is the first time he's raising the issue here. But he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world. So non-Christians who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you not that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business of it is mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. He's quoting Deuteronomy 13 there. 
Listen, we mess up our relationships when we boast about hypocrisy. We brag about it. The church at Corinth was not only tolerating a glaring hypocrisy, they were proud of it. We didn't, we didn't read that, but if, if you'll look, chapter 5, verse 6 says, your boasting is not good. They're proud of this. A man in the church was sleeping with his stepmother. Now, some have, have suggested that his father died. It's not in the text. I don't know if they're trying to give this guy cover or what. But they've suggested that his father died. And some scholars think that the, the word translated is sleeping with in verse 1, which is literally just the verb has. A man has, meaning to have or to possess, has his father's wife, means that he has actually married this woman. There's no question, though, that they're sexually intimate. And they're, they're proud of that. Like, this is great. And Paul's like, what is wrong with you? This pride came from an abuse of God's grace. And because of that, he tells the church to hand this man over to Satan. Now, in our ultra-permissive society, what Paul advocates here sounds like it comes from another planet. He's saying that the church should come together as a body and publicly excommunicate this guy and pray that Satan would afflict him physically so that it will lead him to repentance. Paul bringing the heat today. Oh my goodness. You would trigger a lawsuit if you tried to do this in our culture. And maybe that would be good. <laughs> and then it sure seems like Paul tells the church to ostracize this guy. You've heard of the Amish practice of shunning? That's what he's talking about. What is going on? Is that really what he's saying? Well, yes, it is. But, this scenario is much more limited than the way I think a lot of Christians have applied this passage. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that Paul, without saying it, presupposes that everything that Jesus laid out in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 17, has been followed already. Paul is presupposing that, that has already, that's already been tried and it's failed. All right. In Matthew 18, Paul or Jesus lays out this, this protocol for what happens. All right. So the first thing you do is you do there's a one-on-one -on -one conversation that happens. You go to them individually, like, dude, what you're doing, this is wrong. You shouldn't do this. Then, then the second step in that process is you take a small group, right? You have several people that, that know and trust that individual that they know and trust, and you go to them and like, listen, you need to repent. This is not good. And then the, the next step in that process is then you involve the elders. You maybe go to the elders of the church and you say, we got this issue, somebody in our small group or somebody in our church is doing this and we've, we've gone, I've gone to him individually, I've gone to him as a group and we're not getting any traction at all. What do we do? Can you come talk to them? And so the elders go talk to them. And, and, and if, even if that fails, then you, you call them out from the stage or from like out loud in church, you call this individual out and, and demand that they repent publicly. And then, then when all those avenues fail, then you can activate this process that Paul lays out here. This is serious stuff. And you also have to consider what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter six, verse one, which says, brothers and sisters, 
If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Does what, does what Paul describes here in 1 Corinthians 5 sound gentle? Mm-mm. Nope. That's rough. <laughs> so he, he says, listen, if someone's caught in a sin, you should restore them gently, but wash yourselves or you also may be tempted. What is clear is that what Paul counsels here does not apply in every circumstance where someone is doing wrong. Should we practice this? Yes, we should. But only in situations that roughly parallel the text. Well, what roughly parallels the text? When someone is boasting about their hypocrisy, when they're proud of it, when they're bragging about it, If you go to them and you point out their sin and they go, I know, it's wrong. And they start unpacking their past. That is a totally different situation than when you go to someone and you say, what you're doing is wrong. I know, it's awesome. I love it. Grace. That's when this kicks in. That's the scenario Paul is describing here. If they're not in any way pricked by their conscience, you're not here yet. And the risk seems to me to be far greater that if you misapply this passage, you will relationally alienate this giant hypocrite so much that you will prevent them from listening to you as you try to help them see their hypocrisy and repent of it. You you, you slam the door shut on the relationship and they they just punch out. They, they pull the lever, they parachute, they're gone. And you've lost any influence with them that you might have had. Besides, if it's the Lord's will that his people not be around believers who are struggling in their faith with hypocrisy, then Jesus himself didn't do a very good job of enforcing his own rules. Because the 12 were hypocrites all over the place. Right? We need to be very careful in how we apply this. Paul takes this whole church to task, not for tolerating this behavior, but for boasting about it. They're bragging, you know? They had such a, they had so warped the view of the grace of God that they're like, we've got so much grace, we got this, no problem, no problem with this guy who's sleeping with his stepmom. You got no problem with that? Because God's got a problem with it. Now, this is a hard teaching. It is made unbearable if you misapply the text. The point Paul is making here is that if we take pride in sin, and yes, I use that word very intentionally. If we take pride in sin, it will mess up your relationships. It'll make a mess. The second way we make a mess of our relationships is when we indulge failure. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? By ungodly, he means non-Christians. Or do you not know, implied answer, you should, that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know, implied answer, you should, that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. 
Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. The second way that we make a mess is that we indulge failure. This church was indulging spiritual failure. The word translated dispute here indicates that this was a property issue. This is a minor thing. They're having an argument about their yard. And they can't settle it, so they take them to court. This, this is something that these two brothers in the Lord should have brought before the elders of the church to have them help sort it out. But instead, they take it to a secular Roman court. And now, everybody in Corinth thinks the Christians can't get along. Listen, if we're living by grace, we should not be afraid to let the body or the elders settle disputes rather than taking those things to court. And Paul calls this a complete and utter spiritual failure. Paul is saying that if you take legal action against a fellow Christian, you have failed at relational grace. You made a mess. And, and I will, can I just pull back the curtain a little bit? I've been in ministry 21 years. I don't think this has ever happened maybe more than once. Where someone called me on the phone and said, hey, uh, I'm really in a nasty argument with my brother and the Lord. Can we, when the next time the elders meet, can we come in and talk about it? Because we don't know what to do. Maybe one time. It's been a while. This concerns me. <laughs> this means that, that we're indulging failure. The failure language comes out of chapter 6, verse 7, which says with the, the phrase completely defeated. It means that there's no area where they've been successful at expressing relational grace. In other words, as a church, the Corinthians have indulged failure time and time again. And Paul says that in choosing to assert their rights against a brother or sister is failure. Listen to me, for modern day Americans, why not rather be wronged, why not rather be cheated is an absolutely mind-blowing perspective. This, for us in the 21st century, we are so insistent on our rights. I must have my freedoms. That this, what Paul says here, well, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? And modern day Americans sit there and they listen to that and we go, da, 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 I don't know. We don't have an answer. If it was hard for the Corinthians to hear, how much more than for us here in the United States in the 21st century? Now, why would Paul say this? Two reasons. Number one, it tolerating this being wronged, being cheated, will give you so many opportunities to share your faith, it'll make your head spin. Because your friends will ask, why are you putting up with that? Why are you letting them do that to you? Let me tell you about this guy named Jesus. And that's reason number two. <laughs> that is exactly the same kind of grace God gave you. 
Because couldn't the angels say to the father, why are you letting them do this? Why are you letting them sin like that? And the father says to his heavenly court, I love them. I love them. This is exactly the same kind of grace God gave you. Every time you sin, it is, it is wronging the glory of God. It is cheating him out of, out of glory that he rightly deserves. Why should we do this? Because this is exactly the same kind of grace we've been given. Paul's concern here is not, it is not primarily, it's part of it, but it's not primarily for the reputation of the church. His concern here is primarily for the witness of the church. And when we indulge failure, we hurt the witness of the church. And that's what leads him to talk about the third way that we make a mess of our relationships. The third way is when we embrace immorality. It's when we embrace immorality. I want you to look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. He writes, I have the right to do anything. Now, I want you to notice the quotes around that. There they are. <laughs> nope, there they're gone. Now they're back. Okay. I have the right to do anything. He's quoting a proverb that they were saying in the church there. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord, and he's talking about Jesus there, from the dead. And he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Now I want to pause right here and say, <laughs> there's, there's a translation of the Bible called the Cotton Patch Version. Uh, a man... Um, Oh, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Ah, he founded an interracial farm in Georgia in the 30s. Think about that. Georgia in the 30s, interracial farm. And he did a version of the Bible called the Cotton Patch Version. <laughs> and this verse in the Cotton Patch Version is translated this way. I'm going to have to make one edit because we're in church. He translates this verse, Shall I take the local church down to the whorehouse? Beep, No that's the strongest way you can say no in Greek. And in English, the strongest way we can say no generally is prefaced by a swear word. That's how he translates it. Paul's mad. He, he, he is literally the strongest possible way to say no. He says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, going all the way back to Genesis there. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know? Do you catch how many times he says this? Don't you know? The implied answer every time. You should. That your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. We're going to come back to that next week. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I think what Paul is doing in, in, six, in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 is he's quoting this proverb, this saying, you know, he, he, the, 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 that they were abusing here. He's, he's quoting this, that, you know, I have the right to do anything. You know, grace, I can do anything I want. Grace, woo. 
They're abusing that. And he's saying, yes, you are free in Christ. And yes, God created your body with certain appetites, but that does not give you the freedom to embrace immorality in the way you satiate those appetites and abuse the grace and forgiveness of God. Several times through these two chapters, Paul makes this strong appeal to the final judgment. Did you catch that? Did you catch that end times language? Theologically, what he's doing is he's connecting Christian eschatology, that comes from the Greek word eschaton, which means the last things. So he's connecting Christian eschatology, the second coming, the return of Jesus, with the doctrine of the incarnation. That God, the second person of the triune Godhead, God the Son, became incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth. He's saying that God cares about how we use our bodies. And he will take that into account in the final judgment because he himself took on flesh in the person of Jesus. Paul theologically is connecting the incarnation to how we use our bodies. He said God took on flesh and therefore he cares about how you use your body. Sexual ethics in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament regulate our expressions of gender and sexuality. And the word that Paul uses here, translated sexual immorality, referred to sexual immorality of any kind, homosexual, heterosexual, pansexual, prosexual, it doesn't matter. All of it. And it's categorically condemned by Jesus and the apostles. In the same way, he clearly indicates to the church at Corinth that sexual sin, sins committed in the body, is how he phrases it in chapter 6, verse 18, destroy the church's witness because they essentially proclaim to a watching world that the gospel has no effect. It doesn't change you. Let me be blunt. If you are proud of your brokenness and make no effort to become whole, you don't get to be shocked when people don't believe you when you talk about your faith. If you are suing another brother or sister, you don't get to be hurt when your friend rejects your invitation to come to church with them. If you are sleeping with someone you're not married to, you don't get to be offended when your coworkers call you a hypocrite. When we embrace immorality, it makes a mess. And all too often, we say, sorry, God, just couldn't help myself. You ever hear that from someone you know? A friend that says sorry and they're not sincere about it? How's that feel? Sorry. Sorry. You don't mean it. It doesn't make the mess any better. In fact, it usually makes it worse. Our sin can make a major mess of our relationships. The good news is that God's grace can clean it up. So let's talk about that. Some of you are like, finally. <laughs> let's talk about this. How does grace clean up the messes? Listen, I'm not a germaphobe, but I like to be clean. All right? Even if I'm going to spend the whole day Saturday working in the yard, getting sweaty and gross, I will still generally take a shower in the morning. I, I just, I want to start clean. When I take the trash out in the big blue bin on Wednesday nights at our house, it's our trash day's Thursday. When I take the trash out, I cannot do anything until I've washed my hands. Like, I, the, the, I, I didn't touch anything gross. It, out, it sits outside. I have to wash. I'm not a germaphobe, but I like to be clean. And that's one reason I'm so thankful for the grace of God, because I have done and said and seen and thought some things that made me feel really, really messy. And the good news is that while the Bible is a great source of information on how to mess up a relationship, it also tells us how God's grace can clean that mess. 
I want you to look at this text with me again one more time. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. He says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In this passage, Paul reviews this short list of sins that create relational messes and keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. And because these sins are listed together, and by the way, when he talks about homosexuality, I just want to make this clear in the culture that we live in. I think this is important. The NIV translates it, men who have sex with men. Paul actually uses two specific Greek terms for this. And it is both the passive participant in a male homosexual relationship and the active participant in a male homosexual relationship. In other words, ain't nobody gets off the hook because there are some in our culture who are trying to say, well, it, it, it applies to, you know, uh, it, it doesn't, this doesn't apply to a monogamous committed homosexual relationship. Y- yes, it does. Absolutely, yes, it does. That's what the word means. It, it's what it's always meant. He's very specific here in, in, in these terms. And the NIV does a little bit of an end around and, and tries to, because we just don't have any words in English for that. <laughs> but he, he's very clear. He's saying this applies to any form of it. But he also lists it with stuff like drinking too much. He's lumped in with drunkenness and being dishonest in your business. And it reminds us to never, ever underestimate the power of the grace of God to change lives. So how does the grace of God change us? How does it clean up the mess of our relationships? Three ways. Here's the first one. Grace purifies us from our sin, which helps us reject hypocrisy. He says you were washed. You were cleansed. That word means to be cleansed, to be purified. It's a word that was used to talk about a complete cleansing. It's 100% totally clean. He says you're washed, and when you know that you've been washed, your sin has been taken away, the price for it has been paid, you understand that the old you is dead. When we talk about being buried with Christ, it means that the old you died and God raised up a brand new one, sparkling clean. And toward the middle of chapter six, Paul makes this appeal to the resurrection of Jesus. Any victory over sin is ultimately an appeal to the resurrection. Our hypocrisy essentially exposes the gap between what we say we are and who we really are we're able to reject hypocrisy in our lives to the extent that we live out the resurrection. You listen, you are in training for eternity, right? When sin no longer has a hold on you, that means you're able to reject hypocrisy. That means you're able to express and live in grace. That's what grace does. The second thing grace does is that it makes us holy before God. And that helps us recover from failure. He says you're sanctified. That word means to make something holy, to make it set apart for God. It's a word that was used to describe objects in the temple that had been cleansed and appropriate for temple worship for the Jewish people. When you understand that that your God has sanctified you, he has made you holy, he has set you apart, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and he has a plan to use your body for his glory, then you can move forward again. 
no matter what kind of failure you have in your past, when you understand that God lives in you, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, what that means is he wants to use your body for his glory. And maybe that means getting your hands dirty and getting sweaty serving somebody, and maybe that means killing an illicit desire in your own soul. He wants to use your body for his glory. That helps you recover from failure. The third way that grace makes us right before God is that it helps us learn to love righteousness. Grace helps us learn to love righteousness. He says you are justified. That means to be released from the power of something, to be declared free, to be declared good, to be declared in right standing. It's a word from a legal context, which is significant given what he was talking about lawsuits earlier. It means you're legally set free from the power of another. You are right in the eyes of the law. At the end of chapter 6, Paul talks about us being joined with Christ, and that's actually a sexual image. It's the union of a man and his wife. And he uses that image because in its ideal form, it's the most intimate kind of joining humans can experience this side of glory. We've joined with Christ. We have received his perfection. We've received his righteousness. It is implanted in us by grace. By God's grace, he has declared you to be something that by your nature you are not, which is righteous. And that change in legal status before God makes us love his character, his nature. There's some family in our church that just adopted a couple boys they've been fostering. It was a name change. They're part of a different family. Their legal status changed. It's beautiful. That's what God did for you. Your adoption papers are signed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that makes you love his character, who he is, which is righteous. This is like when a con artist finally gets caught and in order to make restitution for their crimes, they begin to help the police solve other crimes. That's what we do. (laughs) We've been changed by this. This is how we participate in God's work to clean up the mess. Did you hear me today? God's grace can overcome the ways that we mess up our relationships with God and each other. Let me tell you one more story and we're done. Debbie's sister, Jody, and her husband, Lonnie, lived out on a ranch out west for several years where Lonnie worked as a ranch hand. And this ranch was um, like a, a location for a local camp to host a week of cowboy camp. And they'd get these city kids to come out to the camp and they get to live like a cowboy and ride horses and, you know, and work on the ranch. And, and, and Lonnie was part of this thing, my brother-in-law. Well, they had this kid come and his mother had sent him with a giant gallon-sized Ziploc bag full of little bottles of Purell hand sanitizer. This is totally true. This kid went everywhere on a ranch with hand sanitizer. He was useless because he kept saying every, every time they'd touch anything that was dirty at all, he'd reach in his pocket, pull out the Purell, squirt every single time. And he was driving the ranch hands, like my brother-in-law Lonnie, crazy. They were going nuts with this kid. They tried hiding him. He had, apparently had another stash in his suitcase. Like, he just constantly cleaned. He just didn't want to get dirty. And so they thought that if we get him dirty enough, he'll get over it. 
So they forced him to participate in the castration of a bull. <laughs> this is true. Their plan didn't work so well. He fainted. Like just dead, laid out, poof, on the ground. Bless his heart. Yeah, poor kid. He's probably a neurosurgeon today or something. I don't know. But um, they had to send him home. And I think of that story and I read this text. And I am once again amazed at the grace of our God. He had every right to wash his hands of us. He had every right to say to his angels, they're so dirty, I can't take it anymore. They're so corrupt, they're so warped. I'm done. But he didn't. He came down here and he took on flesh and he got right in the mess with us because we needed some help with this mess. See, I, there are a lot of powerful verses in the Bible, but the one that stands out the most to me, I think maybe it, it ranks right up there in the top three with like John 3.16 is the 1 Corinthians 6.11. Paul gives this list of the most vile, despicable, devastating sins the human race has ever invented. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and that's what some of you, finish it church, were, past tense. That means that there were former homosexuals in the church in Corinth, former prostitutes, former drunks, former liars, former cheaters. And as hard as it is for our world to accept, that's who made up this church and God's grace was changing them every day. Now that may or may not describe you. But I want to tell you today that all the Purell in the world can't get you as clean as Jesus' grace can. And so you're going to have an opportunity to respond to that. We're going to sing a song together. If you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, I would invite you to do it today. To come forward, to confess him as Savior and Lord, to be baptized and be cleaner than you've ever been in your life. And if you have been, you have a responsibility to go out there and live grace to the world, the kind of grace you've been given to live a righteous life powered by grace to draw people through your witness into a relationship with Jesus. Let's stand together and we'll sing and you respond as God leads you.